Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 74. My guest today is Grayson Davies, winemaker at RK Winery and Vineyard in St. Joe, which is in North Texas in the Red River Valley, which is in the Texoma AVA. Much more about that later on during our interview. First, I'll share the latest Texas wine news, including reports from some of the Texas wine events that have been happening this month. Whether you're a regular listener or tuning in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Results for Houston Rodeo's Rodeo Uncorked came out just as I released the last episode, but I still want to take a minute to recognize a few extra special award winners. Congratulations to Parasos Vineyard for winning top white wine in the entire competition. The winning wine is the 2022 Winemakers Reserve Pop Blanc from the Texas High Plains. And while this isn't the first time a Texas wine has ever won this award, it certainly doesn't happen every year. The last time I'm aware of is in 2017, when Fall Creek Vineyards won Best White for their 2015 Chardonnay from Certainburg Vineyards. So there were almost 3,000 entries, and this white wine was the top white in the whole competition. And that's huge. Parasos says that this wine is their winemaker Brent's salute to the great white blends of France's Rhone region. The wine is a Viognier Marsan Roussan blend. Also, Becker Vineyards won Top Texas Winery. The Top Texas Wine was Meyerstone's The Airship Red from Texas High Plains 2021 Vintage, and that's a Cabernet Sauvignon Sangiovese blend. Top all-around winery went to Nice Winery, which is in Houston, and has wines from Texas and all around the world, too. You may remember me saying last year that after judging in Houston, I finally figured out the awards levels for this competition. The highest award in each category is the class champion, and the runners-up are called the reserve class champion. Texas wines are also recognized in each category, both as Texas class champion and Texas Reserve Class Champion. Of course, we hope that Texas wineries win class champions because that means that Texas wines have beat out all the other entries from around the world. If you take a look at wines from Texas grapes, that happened 23 times this year. I didn't include the wines from non-Texas grapes. Some of these winners are no surprise to me because they win big awards frequently, or at least they have been lately. Wines like the Messina Hof Palo Sagrantino, Becker's Claret and Viognier and Jolie Rosé, and Dukeman's Alianico. I was also excited to see a few of my personal favorites, like Triple N Ranch Winery's Barbera, Abastris Avignon, which is a red blend, and the Paternalis Cellars Valhalla, which is a Montepulciano blend, and also Portree's Fiano that I just tasted and really enjoyed. And there are a good number of award-winning wines that I haven't even tried yet, so I'll have some work cut out for me. This year, there were 14 reds, one rosé, and eight whites that won class champion. So that's that they beat out every other wine entered from anywhere around the world within that certain category. Most of these wines were appellated Texas High Plains or just Texas, but four are from the Texas Hill Country. 
there were well over 500 Texas wines that were awarded. So this really only scratches the surface, but I did want to shout out the tip-top winners of Class Champions. You can check out a full listing of Texas winners on the Texas Wine Lover website or the results from around the world at HoustonRodeo.com. Another major wine writer has something to say about Texas wine. W. Blake Gray writes for Wine Searcher, and his recent article, Texas, No Country for Bad Wine, chronicles his view on how Texas wine and the wine country has changed from his visits over a decade ago to recent visits to the Hill Country and the High Plains. He says, Texas wines have come a really long way. In my personal notes, I didn't give any Texas wines more than 88 points a decade ago. This year, I found a raft of wines at 90 points or more. Finally, there are some excellent wines being made in Texas at prices that make them better deals than similar West Coast wines. He focuses some attention on Texas's many, many varieties, saying, Growing different grape varieties is an important way Texas vintners deal with the state's biggest challenge— vintage variation like no place else. And then he outlines all of the reasons why Texas has so much vintage variation from heat to hails to freezes. I really like Ron Yates quote that was included in this article. Ron says, we go from very hot to very cold. We just deal with such rapid changes every vintage. We are prepared every year for whatever the weather gives us. In Russian River Valley, they take Pinot Noir and they put it in the tank and let it make itself. We have to do interventions, not in the winery if we can avoid it, in the vineyard. We have to be way more prepared, and we have to be able to completely ditch our entire plan and go another way. The author says that, in fact, even more than the wine's improving quality, what makes him look forward to his next visit to Texas is intellectual curiosity. But speaking of wine quality, he lists these Texas wines and recommends seeking them out. The Spicewood Vineyards, Texas High Plain Tempranillo. He says the debate about which red variety is the best for Texas will never end, but Tempranillo is a current favorite. He also called out Spicewood Vineyards, Texas Hill Country Estate, the good guy from 2018. Bending Branch, Newsom Vineyards, Texas High Plain Tanat from 2018. He specifically says that this is the kind of big red that has eluded Texas in the past. The wine has is rich and has immense tannins, but they grip only slightly, leaving plenty of room for cherry and darker fruit. He also lists the Pedernales Cellars Leahy Vineyards Texas High Plains Tempranillo from 2020. He said it gives Spain a run for the money. And the Pedernales Texas Muvedra from 2019 which he calls surprisingly light and lively on the palate for this heat-loving variety with a pretty aroma of cherry hiding behind a darker note. This is Mouved as Pinot Noir. If you like both, as I do, this is for you. And finally ends with Pedernales Cellars Texas High Plains Graciano. He says, I probably shouldn't include three wines from one winery, but this is the best varietal Graciano I have ever had. There isn't much competition. He goes on to describe it and then finishes saying, This kind of hit with an obscure variety is exactly why I like Texas wine. William Chris Vineyards were on a few holiday-related lists recently. 
In Brittany Annas' article, These Thanksgiving Wines Deserve a Spot on the Table, she lists the 2020 Roussan from La Pradera Vineyard. She says that Roussan is considered Texas's answer to Chardonnay. Texas Monthly included William Chris Vineyard's Hunter on the list of the top 25 Texas gifts of 2023 by Kathy Blackwell. The write-up mentions that William Chris Vineyard's has been named one of the 100 best vineyards in the world for the past two years in a row. She says this wine goes well with mild-flavored game and salty snacks, making it ideal for holiday parties and dinners. Texas Monthly also had a feature article, online anyway, called Black Winery Owners in Texas Hope to Leave a Legacy for Future Generations. In it, author Brooke Lewis notes that out of more than 11,000 wineries across the country, fewer than 1% are Black-owned, according to the Association of African American Vintners. However, in Texas, several Black-owned wineries have opened since the pandemic, signaling a slow change in the mostly white industry. Several wineries in Texas are mentioned, and a couple of them have at least some Texas wine, including Michelle and Kurt Lynn of Chapleton Vineyards in Washington, Texas, Sheila Adams of Kai Simone Winery in Spring Branch, Sherry Lawal Price, Tamisha Hampton, and Felicia Colvin, who own Wine Vibes in Missouri City, and Carissa and Kenneth Stevens of Pure Noir Urban Winery in Houston. Lana Bordelot features a new article in Forbes called A Mixed Case for Thanksgiving, and in it she includes Pedernalis Cellars 2019 Valhalla. It's part of Pedernalis's Italian wine program, and although the 2019 is sold out online, the 2020 has just one big in Houston, and I bet it will be released soon. And finally, another Forbes article, this one by Katie Bell, and it's about the best sparkling wines in America. It includes Bending Branch Winery's Sparkling Pickpool Blanc, made from grapes from the High Plains. The author says it's a refreshing and zesty sparkling wine with a nice lemon cream core and a crisp apple finish. It's very complex and intriguing. Thanks to Bending Branch providing me a sample bottle, I got to try my very first sparkling Pickpool Blanc. And I agree that Pickpool is a great grape for sparkling because of its bright acidity. I hope this won't be my last sparkling Pickpool, and that's a style that I'll be looking for when I visit Pickpool de Panay in the Languedoc in April of 2024. There's still a little bit of room on the trip that I'm planning to southern France and then on to Bordeaux, so if you want to join a group of wine lovers in a quest to find more sparkling Pickpool and GSM blends and Bordeaux blends and all the rest, plus good food and French culture, reach out soon because the trip is expected to sell out. Find links to all these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. We're wrapping up 2023, and listener feedback is one of the best parts about this podcast journey. Robert L. says, excellent podcast. I enjoy your podcast because it educates me about Texas wine industry and gives me better appreciation of work that goes into making great wines. I have converted from California red drinker to only Texas wines. Love going to northern Texas and hill country exploring the various wineries. Thanks for keeping me up to date with what's happening in Texas wine. Thanks, Robert. Please take a minute to leave a review and follow the podcast on your podcast player and also on social media at Texas Wine Pod. 
If you found value from this podcast, I invite you to consider supporting it with a donation. You can do that on the website, thisistexaswine.com, then click support the podcast. Thanks, y'all. And now on to our interview. My guest today is Grayson Davies, winemaker at RK Winery in St. Joe in far, far north Texas. RK is spelled A-R-C-H-E, but it's pronounced like the two letters R and K. The word RK means beginning or origin, the leader, that by which anything begins to be, and is an ancient Greek word, FYI. RK is an estate winery that's owned by Howard and Amy Davies, Grayson's parents. They currently produce about 1,600 cases per year, mostly from the grapes grown on the estate and some sourced from other select Texas vineyards. Grayson and I talk in detail about what was special about this pocket of North Texas that makes it so successful for viticulture, and also details about his much-loved and awarded Chardonnay. We cover his recent harvest experience with his brother, who's a winemaker in Paso, and how he avoids developing cellar palate, among other topics. You'll hear Grayson mention his wife, Presley, who's production and operations manager at Blue Ostrich Winery, right around the corner from RK. Blue Ostrich is owned by Presley's parents, Julie and Patrick Whitehead. That is a North Texas wine power couple right there, and both of them are as sweet as can be. Here's my conversation with Grayson. Tell me a little bit about where we are sitting. So we are sitting... In the middle of the tasting room, in the middle of the vineyard, uh, we have to the north of us, we're looking at Syrah. And then if we continue in the distance, we're looking into Oklahoma. So we are currently, uh, those in the area like to call it the Red River Valley, which hopefully one day we'll have an AVA right here. Uh, we've been in talks about it and trying to get it, and a name is a big question. So maybe Red River Valley, but we are six miles north of St. Joe, Texas, which is about an hour, hour and a half northwest of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So Montague County, I see that you label a lot of your wines, Montague County. Yeah. So technically we are in the Texoma AVA, but I got a big beef with the Texoma AVA and its formation and its shape and how big it is and all that it encompasses and the multiple uh, climactic and topographical soil types. Basically, there's no way that it ever should have gotten approved in the current form that it is. You know, we are nowhere near Texoma or Lake Texoma, and yet it extends east and west an absurd distance uh, that encompasses just so many differences. So anyway... I'm getting down that rabbit hole right there. But um, we are in Monte County. We list our wines as Monte County. We cannot put a state on our bottles because although we are in an AVA, we would have to list Texoma on our bottles in order to put a state. And we, you know, we're not Texoma as far as what people recognize the area of Texoma being. So anyway, yeah, we use Monte County. You're anticipating a number of my questions. Um, Let me just start with the AVA one. If you are looking at further definition of this place, how would you go about defining a a nested AVA or an additional AVA? I guess it would have to be nested because they don't let them overlap, right? I mean, you can have have an AVA, you know, within an AVA. Um, And in fact, 
um, you don't have to list, for instance, you wouldn't have to say Texoma hyphen, you know, Red River Valley or whatever. Right. Um, but we would still be within, you know, the Texoma AVA because in order to carve out an area, remove that from Texoma and then put another AVA within that same area is a much more complicated process. So we've been growing grapes here since since 99, since before the Texoma AVA uh, was actually in place. And we were one of the only, uh, I don't know off the top of my head how many, maybe just two commercial vineyards within Texoma when it was created. And yet we weren't able to kind of uh, advise against it as far as how it was created. And so if you look within the paperwork that got submitted and approved for the Texoma AVA, a lot of the uh, benefits or this is why this is a good grape growing area are actually characteristics within the area that we're currently in right here. Although they use that information to describe the entirety of what is now the Texoma AVA, which is a huge area. Interesting. So tell me a little bit about the things that make this spot unique in yeah. terms of soil and it, oh, anything and, else. And one other thing too, I have nothing against anyone who puts Texoma on their label. And there's quite a few now vineyard and wineries that are to the east of 35, which use Texoma. And that makes more sense because once you cross over west of 35 is when the differences become more substantial. Okay. So I don't want to just dog on like Texoma as a whole. It's just, I'm just upset that the area that we're currently in is listed under the Texoma ABA. And um, so this area that we're in right here, once you go north of Highway 82, um, which runs east and west through, uh, you know, across 35, you know, goes from Florida all the way to California, where St. Joe is, and then just going just north of St. Joe and then east and west um, to the Red River is a transitional area of soil type. So we do have sandy loam, a lot of sand, and then you get that red tinge uh, from the red clay. You know, it's where the Red River gets its name. So that's number one is we have a really, you know, nice soil type tends to be well-drained. In the more eroded areas, it's a little less well-drained just from the heavier clay. There are pockets of just pure white clay sand out here. Also, the topography, we have a lot of bluffs in the area, a lot of elevation change, you know, from about 1,300 to 700 feet elevation change. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry, that's the above sea level, we're at about about 1,000 right here. And so the lowest point is around 700, the highest point is around 1,300. And so um, the bluffs in the area tend to disrupt a lot of major storms that come through. We don't get any hail. I think since 99, we've had hail damage to where you could say uh, we had substantial damage, I think maybe twice. And it was on, it happened to be on our Cabernet Sauvignon that we had just um, leaf plucked to expose the fruit. And then you know, Oops. a week later, you know, hail. But, you know, a lot of the major storms tend to get disrupted. Um, our extremes tend to be a little less extreme out here. We have a lot less rainfall than the surrounding areas. Our average rainfall is usually around 24 to 26 inches. And if you go to St. Joe, the average rainfall is going to be higher. It's going to be, you know, higher 20s, closer to 30. Same with the DFW area. And so you're not fighting 
mold and rot. I mean, we still have it, right? Mm -hmm. Because the amount of rainfall that we get is dispersed throughout the growing season. So we still have that, um, but just not to maybe to the extent. And then we do get some greater diurnal swings. So our nighttimes do cool off a little bit more out here as well. Um, still not, not like Paso or anything like that, where it's you know, 50 degrees cooler at night. But you know, we do have those nice swings in temperature. And, um, and so it's the, the area that I'm describing is really, um, like I said, north of St. Joe, east and west to about Nakona and Munster, uh, which are the next towns over of both the east and west, and then to the Red River. And that's a very unique topography, soil type, climactic conditions, all the things that should you know define an AVA. So you guys bought this property specifically for viticulture, I read. Do you remember your early time on this property before everything was developed like it is now? Yeah, so in 98, it's funny, I've, t- I've told this story many times, but in 98, my parents picked me and my brothers up from a summer camp, and they said, we're going to start a vineyard and winery, which seemed like it was completely out of the blue at the time. Originally, I uh, grew up in Plano, and we were not involved with agriculture. We did not have property, you know, no winemaking, nothing like that. But it turns out it was always a dream of my dad, and it was actually my mom's idea once they took a trip uh, to Sonoma, and they both had a green thumb. My dad's background, his family background was in greenhouse growing in Idaho. Um, so they both liked to grow things, they, um, you know, and they both loved wine. And so they just decided to make this huge, which seemed like a huge jump and change for the family. And so we needed to find a place that, one, was going to be suitable for growing grapes. It had to have the proper soil type. It had to have you know, groundwater available for irrigation. And it had to be within driving distance. So we're right at about an hour and a half from, from Plano. Because we didn't just sell everything and pack up the house and move out here. But we got the land. And interesting thing was there was already a, a, a vineyard here. There were two wells and the vineyard was an old abandoned table grape vineyard where they had planted a French-American hybrid called Venus and grew it for just about four years before they realized, yes, there's a lot of romanticism involved with growing grapes, but it is a ton of work. And they also planted one of the earliest possible budding varieties out there. And so, you know, it just got frosted absolutely every, every spring. And so they gave up. The vineyard was abandoned. All the trellising was there and all the dead vines and the oak trees and the brambles that it had established themselves. So that first year, uh, not very many good memories. Just uh, coming out here, clearing and clearing and clearing and uh, wondering why I... You know, I was in, uh, I guess at that time, about sixth grade. So I was wondering why I couldn't just, you know, stay at home, play with my friends. Said I had to go out to the vineyard, which sounded really cool at first. And then I realized, yeah, it's a lot of work. And so... It's funny, a lot of people say, you know, how did you, how did you get into all this? How, how did you become a winemaker? And I say, well, I was drug into it at a very early age. However, I gained, I truly gained an appreciation for it eventually. And um, it was a lot of work, but I ended up really gaining appreciation for not only uh, growing grapes, but wine. It's why I yeah, got my degree at Vitt- in viticulture and enology from Texas Tech, uh, December of eleven. Uh, been the winemaker since 2010. But yeah, those first years are really hard. So we, we planted that spring. We planted with Vidna for grapes in the spring of 99. 
So, and I still have vivid memories of when we purchased the property in January. There was snow on the ground. Um, the land did come with an old international harvester, which is right out there, which still runs. Do nice. We still brush hog with it. And uh, so we planted with vinifera varieties, um, you know, Cabernet. I think we planted Merlot and some Chardonnay. And uh, gosh, what else? Syrah. And then a couple of years later, we planted Roussan and Morvet, Morved. We actually got the Roussan from Tablas Creek. And I don't have any hard evidence to prove this, but I think we may have been the first ones in the state to plant Roussan because that would have been like 2001. We also planted Morvedra at that time, um, some Grenache, um, some Dolcetto. And then in 2002, we planted... We're looking out this window right here and seeing all Syrah. And so then we, we planted a large planting of Syrah. And there are no longer any original plantings that we did in 99 because starting in 2011, started pulling out the old trellising, the old vineyard, because, I mean, we were utilizing trellising from the 80s. It was way spaced out. Vines were eight, eight feet apart, rows 12 feet. So now everything is on... 7x5, our newest stuff is on 7x4 as we've shifted over to cane pruning everything. So you got a little bit tighter, tighter spacing. And, and so you've planted Chardonnay, which is usually planted... Well, there's not a ton of Chardonnay in Texas, but before I even knew your name or heard of much of anything about RK, I knew that RK had this Chardonnay. So what's the story on the Chardonnay, both from a viticulture perspective and a winemaking perspective? So we planted Chardonnay because my dad liked Chardonnay and wanted to plant it. And so why not? So um, as a lot of growers do, right? You're like, what do we plant? I don't know. Well, you know, I've heard of Cab. So let's plant Cab. Same type of thing with Chardonnay. And the thing about Chardonnay is the vine itself, tend, you know, it'll grow. It's, it's kind of like, you know, like Cabernet. It'll grow almost anywhere. It's just, you know, assuming you got the right clone type, rootstock, et cetera. But, um, you know, it's what's the fruit going to do? Or is it going to produce any fruit? Because Chardonnay does bud out super early. So, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a heartbreaker for a lot of growers, which is why most of them gave it up. And there's only a handful of us in Texas that still grow um, a good amount of it. And it's actually done very well for us. Um, there, are, there were many years where it was, you know, a nearly a total loss. However, you know, another variety that buds out within 10 days of Chardonnay is Syrah, which is probably why you don't see a lot of Syrah grown in Texas either, even though it does really well. Lux, the, uh, the hot weather, it, uh, you know, produces a fantastic grape, uh, but it buds out super early. It's the earliest red that I'm aware of. Um, you know, a lot of people say, you know, like Tempranillo buds out early. Well, Syrah buds out a week before Tempranillo. So, um Anyway, on those years where we'd have a bad spring frost, Syrah would be a total loss. Secondaries barely have any fruit. Chardonnay, secondaries are still pretty fruitful. So even in the bad years, you'd still get, you can still get a, a crop off of it. However, uh, a handful of years ago, we invested in a wind machine. And there's just no beating around the bush if you have frost issues and they are inversion frost that are occurring, then there's no better solution than a wind machine. It'll pay for itself within two years. So 
you know, that's alleviated a lot of our issues. Um, you know, so, but frost is still always up there, but the wind machine has just been a tremendous help. Um, we, that's the only reason why we've gotten great production the last couple of years, even though we've had quite a few frost events out here. This part of the state has a lot of, um, power producing windmills. Do those generate heat that could be used in a inversion frost situation? Out here, you'll see a lot of, uh, you'll see these signs and they'll have a windmill and they'll have a big line through it. Mm-hmm. And they say, yeah, I know ask, and they say, ask me why, right? It's one of those things where it kind of sounds great in theory. There's a lot of issues um, with with the uh, wind machines out here. Um, I'm trying to decide how, like, what I really want to say about that. <laughs> um, but no, the answer to your question because they are utilizing wind to produce electricity. No way related to um, to generating wind. So our wind machine is powered by a 6.8 liter V10. It's a propane motor. So it's basically just like one of the world's largest oscillating fans. And so that's actually stirring the warm and the cool air together, stirring the inversion layers as it slowly rotates and it makes it warmer throughout the entire vineyard. How did you decide where to locate that? Well, the best place would be right in the middle, but we're kind of like the middle of the vineyard, but we're literally like sitting right in the middle of the vineyard. The tasting room. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to put it off to the side a little bit. So logistics came, came into play. I mean, we could have put it out right to our left, which is in between the little cottage and the tasting room, but that would also be a very odd place. So We're in the view. Yeah. So, so we put it in the next best place, but it still covers, it still touches every part of the vineyard. And how much planted acreage do you have here? I believe it's eight and a half. Okay. And are you um, planted out as much as you want to plant over the property or is there room to expand? We have a lot of room to expand. It takes a lot of labor mm-hmm. to, to maintain all the vines. So um, we just did a, a planting of more Syrah and of Alicante Boucher um, in 22. So next year will be its third leaf. And uh, we are currently in the process of rejuvenating our old Syrah vineyard. Uh, there's a lot of trellising issues. Our soil pH out here is between 5.5 and 6.5. So it rusts all the metal posts and things yeah. like that. So we got a lot of uh, trellis work to do out, out in there. And so there is one more grape that we'd probably like to get in the ground before we're, before we probably won't plant any additional varieties and maybe just expand on uh, growing the current uh, cultivars. But um, Cabernet, uh, we do make a blend that's close to our heart called Ryan's Red, uh, which use, utilizes Cabernet. And that's the one grape that we still have to continue to source because we don't grow any Cabernet. It's what we pulled out in order to plant the additional Serran Alicante because it was, um, it was planted in the wrong area. It buds out the latest... Cabernet does, and it was planted in an area that had that was at the highest point, which rarely ever frosted. So we decided to plant some early budding varieties there. Eventually, we will get it back in the ground. Don't know when. Um, like I said, a lot of a uh, lot of work to uh, to mm-hmm. put in acreage. I want to go back to the Chardonnay discussion for a minute. Can you tell me a little bit about the winemaking? We talked about where it is in the vineyard, and that it buds out early. Mm-hmm. But tell me about the harvest of the Chardonnay and then what you do with it when you get it into the cellar. 
Yeah, so everything is hand harvested out here, which is, you know, nice being where we are. Um, it's There is a huge benefit to hand harvesting fruit because you get to be very selective in what you take. And our Chardonnay out here, it does very well. It uh, produces well. It's not overcropped, uh, but it produces very well. Gets nice and ripe, good morphological ripeness. And interestingly enough, it has the best chemistry of any other grape. Really? It, it does the best. This year, this vintage was very hot. I think 2011 was a little bit hotter, but this was a very hot year. Very hot nights, very hard on everything. The Chardonnay grapes still had better chemistry than absolutely anything. It buds out very early, and it is off the vine between August 3rd, I think is the earliest we've ever harvested, maybe August 4th. The latest we've ever harvested is August 15th. So it tends not to just be sitting on the vine, cooking, trying to get ripe throughout you know the end of August into September, which I think is a benefit. Also, the vines has, have good vigor. They tend to be able to, um, they're planted with uh, 110R, very drought-tolerant rootstock. And um, it's kind of a perfect pairing with our clone type. Anyway, so it's easy to make good wine with it is basically where I'm going with this. Um, now, when you try to get into philosophy of winemaking and, and style and, and everything, um, ultimately, it all starts in the vineyard. I, I think to be the best winemaker that you can be, you have to have knowledge of viticulture and you have to be in the vineyard. Um, or you just have to have, have really good trust in whoever's doing that for you. But um, it's very important. It, it's, it's all in the vineyard. It's all about the grape. And the Chardonnay uh, try to do very little to it other than, um, you know, like any winemaker wants to say, um, when you have really good fruit, you just like to guide it. You don't want to have to, you know, intervene a lot. Um, you don't want to have to make it a a uh, winemaker's vintage where you're having to play around with it and fix it, this and that. So stylistically, uh, it always touches oak, goes through mallow. Although I still consider myself a very um, young winemaker and that I'm still, there's still so much to learn every year, every year. Always try to do something new every year. Try to improve on something, improve on the previous vintage every year. So I feel like I'm still developing my style overall, but... You know, I just can't reiterate enough how important it is from a viticulture standpoint to get the proper, you know, the proper ripeness, harvest at the proper time, um, get the proper balance. And then once it's in the winery, you know, proper uh, pH monitoring and control, that's one of the main issues we have in Texas. I mean, as a winemaker in Texas, probably one of the number one issues is just how do you, how do you fix your pHs? Um, and I, I think... A lot of people in the industry that are not in Texas don't understand, don't realize the lack of you know, acidity in our grapes, and we have to account for that, and you have to account for it in a way where you don't create an unbalanced wine or a tart wine or a wine that has very high pH um, you know, so that you create an ageable wine, a stable wine, you know, all those things. And, you know, which is probably things that people don't necessarily want to talk about all the time, but it's very important. 
have you played around with how you approach oak? You said all the Chardonnay touches oak. So have you done like neutral barrels or certain percentages of new? And do you always use a certain type of barrel? So with our Chardonnay, we have a, a couple different Chardonnay wines, whether they're blends. We do um, a blend called True Friends, which is primarily Chardonnay with Roussan. Um, we do a, a, just, you know, a regular Chardonnay, I guess, and then a reserve Chardonnay. So the reserve Chardonnay is always barrel fermented and aged in New French Oak. Um, New French Oak barrel done Batonage style, aged Surly. Now, the duration that that wine stays in oak has been varying, and I would say over the last few years, we'll spend less time in oak. And I think part of that is as the vines continue to mature and mature and get a little more varietal character. And as I develop as a winemaker, realizing that although oak plays a very large factor, you know, trying to obtain the right balance and oak integration and you want to showcase the grape. You should always really showcase the grape. And the oak should be part of that backbone and should integrate and help showcase the grape. That's my opinion. And I guess if you want to go stylistically, that's what I that's what I believe in. Um, you know, to create a wine that all you get is the oak, even if it's very high quality oak. I just, I, I don't think that is as enjoyable as when you're able to really taste the grape itself. And so um, as years progress, I would say our Chardonnay spends a little bit less time in oak. Although I, I liked oak Chardonnays. I just, you know, don't want to just taste the barrel. Um, so our regular Chardonnay, our non-reserved Chardonnay are done in, tend to be done in flex tank with staves. And actually with staves, you can kind of play around with your oak a little bit more. And so we use convection toasted staves that are toasted at different, different levels. And so you're able to use, you know, a percentage of a heavier toasted stave with a percentage of a lighter toasted stave that may bring out more, you know, vanillins and uh, a heavier toast that may bring out some slight mocha characteristics. And so you're able to kind of layer those different characteristics um, with the wine, and that goes with with all of our wines that touch their own flex tank with staves, and then our reserve wines, yeah, are, are done with, um, you know, in barrel. How does your approach to red wine differ in terms of oak usage? Or we talked a little bit about the wine jam last weekend and about your use of Sanier. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can just talk through the red wine winemaking approach. So with red wine and the Sanier method. So that's something that I really learned about and started doing because of my brother. Uh, my brother's a winemaker in California, and I have come to believe that Sonyang, your red fruit, is really uh, the easiest and the best thing that you can do to um, ultimately get better quality, better concentration, better flavors, um, better quality red wine. And it's been done for centuries, Saunier method. And so by pulling and removing a certain percentage of the juice of your red fruit as it's being processed before that juice has had a chance to absorb the color and structure from the skins and pulling that off, you know, the reds therefore become that much more concentrated. So there are a couple different reasons why you would want a Saunier. 
you might saunier because of density purposes, meaning your density is too high. You have too much sugar. And so you're going to have to saunier a certain amount out so that you can ameliorate, bring your sugars down without diluting your, your final, your wine. Um, if you just ameliorate without saunier first, you are just purely diluting the product. So that's one reason. And then the second reason is if you are particularly growing grapes in an area that has hotter nighttime temperatures to where the tannins don't develop and the colors don't develop to the same degree, then that is extremely beneficial in order to concentrate um, those tannins, the colors, the flavors, um, as a lot of Texas's. We have a lot of issues with that, with tannin development, tannin ripeness, color ripeness, and development. And so by saunying the fruit, we're able to eliminate those problems. And so the amount that we saunier um, is a little bit higher than uh, other areas of the world where they may saunier just for, uh, you know, maybe just for density purposes. We'll saunier our fruit typically around 20%. Um, I've done higher, done up to 35%, just why not? Trying to see what happens. It actually created an amazing wine, but also yield plays a, a large factor in, in making those determinations of the percentage of San Yang. And then the benefit, the side benefit is the fact that you're getting a rosé. So a long time ago, you know, decades ago or a couple decades ago, when wineries would sanye their fruit, a lot of wineries would just dump that juice, just dump it down the drain because there was no marketplace for a dry rosé for sanye fruit. Dry rosés were not a, um, a marketable product in the United States for a very long time. It's not until just relatively recently within the last, you know, 15, 20 years or so where you're starting to see a lot of uh, dry rosés. And so we sanye all of the, uh, all of our fruit. And it's just one of the ways that we can try to get better flavors and concentrations in your red wines. You've mentioned your brother and I know that he's a winemaker and, and Paso. Yes. I actually was in Paso for the first time this summer. I was going to visit Tablas Creek, which I've been dying to do for a long time. And I think I posted about it on Instagram and Victoria Calais messaged me and she's like, you've got to call Grayson and see if he can get an appointment for you at his brother's place. Um, I know that you were out there just recently participating in their harvest. What did you learn and uh, what surprised you about that experience? Yeah. So my brother's at La Venture out there in Paso, which is a very high quality um, very, very high quality estate uh, vineyard winery. And uh, I had the pleasure of being able to spend a week out there while they were still in harvest. Our harvest was very early this year and we were a hundred percent estate and everything was off, off the vine by mid September and they were very late. And we've talked about for years before he was even um, at Leventure when he was a winemaker at a previous uh, winery, you know, we'd been talking about it for years and years and just never came about. And this year, like if we don't make it happen, you know, it's never, never going to happen. So I took uh, my daughter uh, with me um, so she could spend time with her cousins and my wife, who is, you know, at, uh, at our neighboring winery, Blue Ostrich. Her family owns Blue Ostrich and she's production manager, vineyard manager there. And she had to take care of our four month old son. And so went out there and had a really great time. You know, people said, Oh, you know, was that a nice little vacation? You I didn't, it was like, I didn't really take a vacation. Now, granted, I was kind of like seller rat grunt did whatever I wanted to do kind of, 
but I never said no to anything. If my brother asked me to do something, I would do it obviously. Cause I wanted to get hands on. And so it was, it was really cool because although I've been a winemaker since 2010, I have never worked at another winery other than my family's place. So I had all the dots, but I didn't really have all the connections made between those dots, if that makes sense. And so seeing it from a different perspective, it was really cool. And then seeing it from a different perspective at a really quality place was very neat. And so I was able to come home with that with a lot of ideas. And again, it wasn't just winery ideas. It wasn't just production, but it was viticulture. It was being out in the vineyard, tasting the grapes, being being able to identify, you know, what am I tasting as far as ripeness goes? You know, the seed tannins, the grape tannins, are they properly mature? Is this grape ready to come off the vine? And being able to just see see someone else um, kind of make those decisions and then just being able to see it from a different perspective was really cool. It was really neat. And it was just great seeing my brother because we don't get to see each other very often. So I was able to come home with some wine. You know, I was able to go to a couple of wineries, uh, Tin City and Paso, which is pretty cool. Um, Super cool. Yeah, so if you ever go to Paso, Tin City, you know, you got a bunch of wineries all located within this one little urban area. Um, but yeah, I had a blast. And uh, it was my daughter's first, you know, plane ride. And she did oh, great. Nice. And so, yeah. I read that he took his current job because he wanted to be able to be not just working in the cellar, but also in the vineyard and that the job gives him the best of both worlds. I'm guessing you do both as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned before, and the, to be a great winemaker, I really believe that you have to have a great understanding of the viticulture aspect. I can't stress that enough. And so Yes, we're family-owned and operated, and usually in any family business, that means you're going to wear many hats and do a lot of different things. But um, being that we're a state, uh, it's not like I source all my fruit, and so I have to travel, which can be very difficult to logistically of, of tasting the grapes and saying, you know, yeah, let's hold off on harvest, or yeah, these need to come off the vine. But being that I can step outside and be in the vineyard is very important. And being able to be there from pruning, um, tucking, and then determining harvest, everything in between, I think, um, is a great thing. Um, I'm blessed to be able to be in this situation. When you look back over the past few vintages, are there wines that you think have just like made quantum leaps of improvement and how have you kind of changed your approach to them? Or just give me some of the highlights of wines that you've made and that you're, things that you're particularly proud of. Well, it would be easy to say kind of the Chardonnay and as the vines mature and as I grow as a winemaker, trying to make a, a better and better Chardonnay. Um, you know, I take a lot of pride in that. And then, but I think more than that, it's our Syrah. Um, I really like to make Syrah and for many years it got frosted in the spring so many times and we were starting to see a decline in the vineyard. Um, had a lot of ESCA and wood diseases. It's one of the reasons why we switched everything over from cordon pruning to cane pruning. And we've learned so much with pruning technique and from a viticultural aspect, the art and science of pruning is so important 
because that's where you get to make the decisions that are going to determine the next one, two, three years of that vine and the production of that vine and the quality of that vine. And so learning more about properly pruning and then seeing the, the vines um, respond and actually getting harvest because since we got the wind machine um, lately, the last few vintages being able to actually create Syrah again um, has been really exciting. And those Syrah vines, the majority of them have been in the ground since 2002. So there's good maturity there. There's good complexity. And so just trying to improve on the Syrah is exciting. And then in 2020, we planted a large planting of Morved and Grenache. And then being able to make a small amount of Morved actually on for 22 that's in barrel and just being able to taste those wines and going, wow, all right, maybe one day we are going to be knowing for making excellent Morvettes uh, because of just seeing the quality and just third leaf uh, vines was kind of astounding. And so in seeing the progression of those vines, especially since those plantings are young and every year there's more concentration in that fruit, more varietal character. So that's, that's kind of exciting. So I got a lot of things here. I don't I just have like one thing here or there, but a lot. And you have all the components for GSM, but that Syrah is so precious, you might not want to blend it. You just might want to have only single varietal. You know, the plan is to create, um, we actually do have uh, GSM. Uh, we don't call it GSM. It's going to be called Apex, which is a blend that we've always done with primarily Syrah. And so we have it. It's in barrel. Cool. It's good. That's um, exciting. Yeah. And our rosé was, a, you know, in uh, 22 was a GSM. Okay. Because, you know, we saunier everything. Yeah. So you got all the parts. throw it all together. Yeah. It was good to see you guys down as well as Blue Ostrich down at Texas Wine Jam. Have you guys participated in that before? Do you do events around the state or? And there's so much excitement going on in North Texas, but um, it's fun to get out into other parts of the state as well. Yeah. So the Texas Wine Jam was a really fun thing to do. I really wanted to be able to do it because uh, of the area. And I wonder, I love going down to the Hill Country and I love visiting with Daniel at Vinovium. Um, good buddy of mine. And we've known each other for many years. We met through the industry. Um, I think the first time I met him, he actually was out. I think he, he was out here um, in the tasting room uh, back before we had this building that we're sitting in. And so... I've participated in a few events that have been hosted by Venovium or at Venovium. And so I wasn't able to make it last year because of scheduling. And I told Daniel, I was like, man, I'm so sorry I wasn't able to make it, but let me know. I don't care what I have going on next year. I'll make it. I'll make it work. And so we made it work. And um, my wife was able to, to be there too with her winery and had a great time and you know, it's always fun when you're able to be around other people in the industry and visit, um, you know, aside from the fact that, yeah, we're selling wine, which is always fun too. Yeah. Well, I had to, I had to just uh, shake my head when the one guy came up and said, I don't like Chardonnay. I, I mean, I'm guessing you may have some good responses for that. Good to get well, into. That's a very common, yeah. common, uh, you know, statement. And, a lot of times I say, oh, well, here, just taste it. I mean, you can, it's okay if you don't like it. You won't, you won't offend me. 
Um, and one thing I like to say is, okay, do you like white wine at all? Just like any white wine. Do you like a white wine? I'm like, yeah, I like you know, the occasional this or that. I'm like, okay. Well, then you just haven't tried the right Chardonnay yet because they're all over the map. That's the thing. You know? And that's for most varieties. Yeah. You know, people, you know, like, oh, I hate Merlot. Well, then you've never had a good one. <laughs> you know, or you could say that for any variety out there. Yeah, you, there's all kinds of styles. Do you still, do you taste a lot of wines of the world? You know, I try. Um, the worst thing that you could do as a winemaker is develop a cellar palate. Now, I can, I can assure myself that that'll never happen because I'm my, my own biggest critic. Um, when I try my wines, all I look for are the faults. That's all I'm trying to do. And so that being said, you have to try other wines. You absolutely have to. If you're drinking your own stuff, I mean, it's like drinking your own Kool-Aid. You can't do that. Eventually, it's going to catch on. Uh, and then all you want is Kool-Aid, I guess. But um, no, it's so, you know, being in Paso um, the other week, that was great. Because I was just able to tr- try a lot of great wines. You know, a lot of the same varieties that we're doing in Texas. Mm-hmm. And so then I come back and I'm like, okay, you know what? I think, yeah, this, I need to work on creating, uh, you know, a little more structure with more fleshiness that rounds out that mid palate, you know, things like that, that, you know, aspects that you won't get if you're just trying your own stuff over and over again. But if you're trying other people's wines, if you're trying other regions' wines, other states, other country wines, you know, that's an absolute must because it's the only way to really improve yourself. And it's one of the easiest ways that you can do of, of trying, of kind of deciding that you need to make a change stylistically or maybe with some of your techniques. Good point. Well, there seems to be a lot of excitement in North Texas wine country right now. A lot of new vineyards and uh, wineries on the way. And that's exciting. Um, so you have immediately near you Blue Ostrich, of course, and then 4R Ranch, not yes. too far. Mm-hmm. Who are your other closest neighbors? You know, there's uh, Lonesome Vine, which is actually south of us, um, just outside of the city of Montag. Um, and they're, uh, uh, Christy and Andrew, they started, and they're doing, they're a state starting, um, they're growing their own grapes. I like to say they're doing it the right way. They're... Um, they're going to be really good, and I actually was able to. I was fortunate enough to be able to try um, some estate uh, wine, wines from them just last night, and they're. Um, it's very exciting what they're doing. And then um, there's like little pods of wineries, so it depends on how far you want to want to go. You know, 45 minutes away near Decatur, there's another little pod of wineries. But this specific area that we're in is really nice. There's another grower that. Um, I think we'll be starting within the next few years, um, just north of us. And then once you go to the Gainesville uh, Valley View area, then there is you know Edge of the Lake. There's Firelight, uh, Deshane Cellars is a winery that, uh, in Gainesville, and so there's a lot of little wineries and vineyards, especially they're popping up in the North Texas area. And I I, I get excited about seeing the vineyards popping up. Because then you're able to showcase the terroir and then establish the region. It's I think it's harder to establish a, reg- a region for just wines, but 
if you're able to establish it for growing the grapes, I think that's very important because then that area becomes becomes more um, more unique and it's more exciting, I think, to the consumer too. I tend to agree. I harvested, I, I'll have to look at a map, but I harvested with uh, K.K. Hartman just oh, yeah, yeah. She is, this year. Yeah, she's east of us. Okay. And now she is in, she utilizes the Texoma AVA and that would be someone that, She's much closer to, she's much closer to Lake Texoma, yeah. So it makes it makes more sense. And she, yeah, she grows she grows a handful of varieties. Um, she's making good wines, and um, her and her husband are great people, mm-hmm. and uh, very excited for them as well. And they're yeah, I think they're they're about forty five, maybe an hour away. Oh, is it that far? Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I need to look at a map. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, well, like, doesn't that make sense? Why? Uh, you know, the AVA Absolutely. As, as its current form doesn't make sense. That's yeah. your whole point. Yeah. I get that. Well, what have we not talked about that you want to be sure and mention and have people know about RK? Well, we're not only a vineyard and winery, but we are a tasting room. So, you know, we, um, we're open to the public year round Thursday through Sunday. So if you want to be able to, um, get out and be in the country and be able to visit multiple wineries and be out in nature and see a vineyard and drink good wine, then come check us out. Um, rkwines.com. It is gorgeous up here. Thank you. I think so. You know, and one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is how beautiful the North Texas sunsets are. So we have, um, there's a lot of beautiful country out here. Um, right now we're actually, we do kind of have a fall. There's some orange out there. It's going to be pretty. It isn't all just going brown. Our vines are brown because they're so much more, um, they're not as tolerant to the, to the freezing temperatures as those oak trees are. But yeah, it's a beautiful area, beautiful land. You know, if you're in the Dallas Fort Worth area, you're used to mainly flat. And as soon as you go north to St. Joe, just bam, just rolling hills. It just drops off and there's some beautiful views out here. Any recommendations for uh, if people make a day trip somewhere to stop for lunch? Or do y'all do food oh, here? Yeah, we have food here. We do like flatbreads and charcuterie and things like that. I um, think, you know, all the wineries out here do food Something to like a degree. That. Yeah. And then there's uh, tons of uh, rentals and Airbnbs and things like that. In fact, just just uh, across the street from our main gate is a, is a rental property right oh. there. So, um, yeah, so you can stay within walking distance of a winery. And then, um, yeah, St. Joe has a couple, has a cool little burger joint called the Windmill Grill, a couple other little cool cafes. So there's a lot going on up in this area. Excellent. Well, hopefully everybody will come check it out. Thanks, Grayson. I hope people will keep an eye on the North Texas wineries because there's a lot to love, both from existing wineries, like some that we mentioned, and up and coming wineries and vineyards, too. Listeners, if you're interested in hearing more from North Texas, check out episode 33 from November 2021, featuring Grayson's father-in-law, Patrick Whitehead of Blue Ostrich Winery. And also be sure to follow North Texas Wine Country on Instagram to get the latest from North Texas. Stay tuned for Demerits and Gold Stars. Now it's time for a couple of gold stars. This one goes out to the newly reconstituted Texas Department of Agriculture's Wine Advisory Committee. The Monday before Thanksgiving, this committee met for the first time in Austin at the invitation of the Texas Department of Agriculture. 
I guess we're going to be meeting a couple times a year to give our opinions on Texas wine things. Matt Bostick from Yano was elected as chair and James Smith of Chateau Wright is vice chair. I'm a consumer member and joining me as winery and grower representatives are Pamela Yoder of Yoder Cellars and Vingo Vineyards, Greg Davis of Colisey Cellars, Julie Culkin of Pedernales Cellars, Sheremy Law Ajo of Sheremy Wines, Brock Estes of Fly Gap Winery, Susan Johnson of Texas Heritage Vineyards, Brian McHugh of Skies Over Texas Winery, Justin Shiner of Texas A&M, Casey Cargill of Triple C Winery, and another consumer member, Stacey Ingram. Well, this should be fun. I'd love to hear from anyone who's been on this committee before to hear about your experiences providing feedback to the TDA. Another gold star goes to Smithsonian Magazine author Alex Myasi for the article, The Man Who's Saving America's Forgotten Grapes. In the article, Alex profiles Jerry Eisterhold, owner of Missouri's Terravox Winery. And you're wondering, what does this have to do with Texas? But just you wait. Back in the 1980s, Jerry was browsing in a used bookstore and came across an old copy of the book Foundations of American Grape Culture, which was originally published in 1909 by somebody named Thomas Volney Munson. Jerry says it was like finding a trapdoor in the basement that leads to Jules Verne's Lost World. This is a long, detailed article, and I'd really encourage you to read it for yourself. But basically, Jerry wrote to an administrator at Grayson College, which, as you know, is in North Texas, and he was hoping that Munson vines might still be growing there, and he asked for any cuttings they may be willing to provide. Of course they did, and Jerry started growing them in his backyard. Well, his first attempts were unsuccessful, but then in 1994, he replanted a different site with around 60 varieties of Munson grapes that he secured from Grayson and from agricultural repositories at UC Davis and in Geneva, New York, that stockpiled seeds and plants. The article says that he guessed correctly that Munson's renowned had led these genetic banks to hold on to these grapes for researchers and breeders. And he also planted some Norton, the French-American hybrid. One of his goals is to preserve and promote obscure grape varieties and forgotten flavors. But he also wants to help garner respect and recognition for local grapes. And he hopes that people will view turning to non-European grapes not as a sacrifice or a downgrade, but an opportunity for exploration. His winery's website, Terravox, says, Our project has been prompted by a serendipitous reading of Thomas Volney Munson's book, Foundations of American Grape Culture. Our vineyard could not exist without the work of T.V. Munson. T.V. Munson was an American viticulturalist working around the turn of the century, and he's credited for saving the European wine industry from utter destruction by phylloxera. In addition to saving European vines, Munson was also an avid grape breeder and the leading expert in North American grape species. This is the foundation of Terravox, where we are continuing Munson's and now Jerry's quest to discover and become experts in the unique flavors that native North American grapes bring to wine. Oh, I just got chills reading that. Well, now I want to go to Kansas City and tour Terravox and meet and interview Jerry Eisterhold for his great work promoting American native grapes using Munson cuttings.
Well, that's it for this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with my final episode of 2023. It's a look back at the big Texas wine stories of the year, and hopefully I'll have a special guest joining me. Until then, you can get in touch. Send your feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes to texaswinepod at gmail.com. Finally, thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Check out txwinelover.com and download the app to help you plan your next trip to a Texas winery. I'm excited to be heading out this weekend for a couple of special events. I'm finally going to Uplift Vineyards, and I'm also going to the Abastris Christmas Market. So if you know of other exciting things going on in the Hill Country this weekend, shoot me a message. Thanks for listening. Cheers, y'all. Cheers, y'all.